Well hi there everyone and welcome back to MedTalks. I'm Sahunachani and I'm currently a junior doctor working in the East Midlands. This episode is part of our finals countdown series where we are providing medical students, in other words the future of our NHS, with short, succinct and super useful revision talks for upcoming exams. In this episode, and we're going we're in the gastroenterology section, I'll be talking about gastroenteritis. So I'll be covering what gastroenteritis is, how it occurs, how patients who have gastroenteritis may present, how we might diagnose it, and then also the treatment types. So, as with all of our talks, please remember to share them with your peers and your friends who will also find them useful. Subscribe to our channels, follow us on social media platforms such as Facebook and Instagram, and leave us a review on the Apple podcast platforms so we know how you're finding these talks and leave any suggestions as well. Now before we get into the meat of this episode, hopefully not uncooked, I'd like to just take a moment to thank the sponsors of this episode. So Wesleyan is a company that was set up way back in 1841 and they provide tailored financial advice and products to multiple professional groups including doctors, dentists and teachers. I'd like to touch on Wesleyan's latest project called The Next Step. The next step is born from the Wesleyan tradition of giving back. Built in collaboration with final year students, the next step brings together some of the brightest sparks in medicine for live events, workshops, exam resources and content and podcasts to make the step into F1 a little easier. They address subject matter you didn't know you needed to know. So go on over and follow them on Instagram by searching at the Wes Next Step, also Facebook by searching at the next step hyphen Wesleyan or visit their website, which is thenextstep.wesleyan.co.uk. So let's get started. Gastroenteritis means inflammation of the stomach and the intestine, usually as a result of an infection, and typically this will be a virus. It's quite non-specific, and it encompasses diarrhea, vomiting, and abdominal pain. So causes of gastroenteritis vary from viral causes and examples being norovirus, rotavirus and adenovirus to bacterial so E. coli, Shigella, Salmonella, Campylobacter species, Bacillus cereus commonly associated with rice as per past med questions and parasites such as Cryptosporidium and Entamoeba. In England and Wales the most common cause of gastroenteritis in adults is norovirus most of the time, unfortunately, the causative agent is not actually isolated. However, thankfully, it doesn't change treatment because typically the treatment is supportive. So, let's think about some risk factors for the development of gastroenteritis. Poor personal hygiene is one. Lack of sanitation, especially hand washing. And obviously, Boris Johnson is an expert on hand washing and shaking hands. Immunosuppression, such as diabetes or HIV. Uncooked or poorly cooked foods and foods which are left out too long at room temperature. And ina inadequate reheating of food is another risk factor. So the different causative agents can produce varying clinical pictures. For viruses, the incubation period is around a day. For bacillary dysentery, it's a few hours to four days. And for parasites, they hang out for about seven to 10 days. Bloody diarrhea should raise suspicion for a bacterial infection, particularly E. coli 0157, or after returning from an exotic region. Rotavirus typically causes epidemics within the country. Now in terms of 
examining patients, it's always vital to assess their hydration status. So patients with gastroenteritis lose copious amounts of fluid from both ends really, and so they're likely to appear clinically and possibly biochemically dehydrated. And I'll explain what this means shortly, but start to have a think about how we may assess someone's fluid status. So the way we can classify dehydration is mild, moderate and severe. So mild dehydration, patients may be anorexic or have no appetite. They may feel nauseous, a bit lightheaded and show signs of postural hypotension where we measure the blood pressure while sitting down or, sta or, or lying down and then a few minutes later check their blood pressure once they've stood up. And what we look for is a, an, a at least 20 millimeters mercury drop in the systolic blood pressure and or a 10 millimeters mercury drop in the diastolic blood pressure. So that's mild. Now let's talk about moderate dehydration. So patients may show signs of tiredness, apathy, dizziness. They may have some muscle cramps. They may have a dry tongue with sunken eyes and reduced skin, skin turgor. Again, they may have postural hypotension, maybe tachycardic and oliguric so not producing as much urine. And then severe dehydration, where there's profound apathy, weakness, confusion, which is a sign of inadequate cerebral perfusion, signs of shock, so hypotension, tachycardia, a systolic blood pressure less than 90, oliguria or even anuria, where they're not producing any urine at all. So these are some of the key features and key things to look out for when assessing a patient's hydration status. Right, so now we need to investigate. So firstly, we're going to perform an A to E assessment and make any necessary interventions, ensuring that the patient is clinically and hemodynamically stable. We need to obtain a stool sample to send over to our lab friends to see if they can find anything interesting that's growing under the microscope. Blood tests, so we need to get a full blood count to assess for signs of infection, so raised white cells or neutrophils. Patients also having bloody diarrhea, then we want to make sure that they're not becoming anemic. And so that's why we also want to check the haemoglobin and the mean corpuscular volume. Urea and electrolytes to assess renal function and fluid status. So has the patient gone into an acute kidney injury because of pre-renal fluid losses? And here we'd see a rise in the urea and the creatinine and possibly a fall in the GFR. And as they're losing lots of fluid, they may be they may be electrolyte deplete, so they may be hypokalemic and hyponatremic. Imaging, so we may need to do an abdominal x-ray, especially if the patient's got some abdominal distension. It also helps you to rule out other causes. So, for example, looking for any sign of constipation. If an x-ray doesn't give you all the answers, but you're still considering other causes, then you can also consider doing an ultrasound of the abdomen or even a CT scan of the abdomen for a more detailed look. So with all medical problems, it's always important to think about what else it could be or the differential diagnoses. And we should consider other causes, including inflammatory bowel disease, a UTI, constipation with overflow diarrhea. And this is especially if you're dealing with an elderly patient who has a known history of constipation. Okay, so now let's go on to talk about the management of patients with gastroenteritis. Now, a lot of the time, patients can actually manage with this at home, and the mainstay of treatment is supportive oral rehydration. And, of course, this depends on whether the patient can actually keep fluids down. So if they are able to keep fluids down, then they should have small, frequent meals, avoiding fatty and spicy foods, and just try to keep as much fluids, so drink lots of water as much as possible. Now, obviously, if they have any signs of dehydration, severe dehydration particularly, 
or they're unable to retain any fluids orally, then they should be admit, considered for hospital admission. And furthermore, if they have social circumstances, which means that it's not safe to keep them at home, so for example, they're elderly, or they're isolated, or they have underlying medical problems, or they have lack of carers to help them, then hospital, hospital admission should be strongly considered. Talking about inpatient hospital management, patients should be kept in a side room ideally, so isolated from everywhere else. Um, this is to reduce the spread of any infection and and then in terms of medications, so the, the antiemetics are going to be the main medications that we use, so things like ondansetron, cyclozine, metoclopramide. Anti-diarrhea drugs are not typically used, so things like loperamide or also known as imodium, they're not usually recommended but often patients would have tried them before seeking help. But they shouldn't be used if patients have a fever or they have any blood or mucus in their stools. The simple reason for this is that we want the patient to clear the toxins that are present within their intestine. And so in order to do that, they need to have frequent stool, stool motions. And giving them anti-diarrhea, anti-motility drugs is just going to slow that down and slow the clearing of any toxins that may be brewing in there. And antibiotics are pretty much never indicated, mostly because majority of the cases are viral. Patients will need to be excluded from either school or work for 48 hours from the last episode of the diarrhoea or vomiting. And if they've got ongoing episodes, then exclusion will need to go on for longer than that. And then it's all about reducing the spread. So not sharing towels, washing any soiled bed sheets separately from the other clothes, frequent hand washing and uh, regularly cleaning surfaces. Norovirus is partially resistant to alcohol hand gel and C. diff spores are not killed by alcohol so for these cases hand washing with soap and water is definitely recommended. The main complications from gastroenteritis are usually dehydration and electrolyte disturbances both of which are fairly easy to treat with either oral or IV fluids and replacing electrolytes accordingly. But there are some complications that we need to be aware about. One of them is hemolytic uremic syndrome and this is rare and it's it's a syndrome which includes the following features so it includes acute kidney injury hemolytic anemia and thrombocytopenia so low platelet levels and it usually usually occurs in very young children or very frail and elderly adults and the typical causative agent is e coli 0157 which produces a particular toxin called a sugar toxin that causes these features Often bacterial causes may lead to reactive symptoms which might be delayed in presentation for several weeks and they can cause things like arthritis, carditis, urticaria, conjunctivitis. Guillain-Barre syndrome is also is associated with a viral infection. So Guillain-Barre syndrome is it's a rare neurological disorder where the body's immune system mistakenly attacks part of its peripheral nervous system. And a trigger for this is a type of infection, so gastroenteritis most commonly, and it causes an, a, an ascending neuropathy. And it's, it is rare, but it can cause some serious effects. So typically it occurs about three weeks after a viral illness, and it presents with an ascending pattern of proximal symmetrical weakness, which start in the lower extremities. It can also cause some pain, so neuropathic pain in the legs, reduced or absent reflexes, and sensory symptoms, including paresthesia and sensory loss, again, in the lower extremities. And if you want to find out more about Guillain-Barre syndrome, you can check out our episode on it in the neurology section of the series, which is available across all podcast platforms. But that brings me to the end of this episode. So today we've talked about gastroenteritis, we've looked at how it occurs, how patients might present, how we investigate it, 
and how we manage gastroenteritis, which is mainly supportive treatment. And we've also explored some of the potential complications. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and found it useful. As I mentioned at the beginning, please remember to share it with your friends and your peers who may also find them useful. Subscribe to our channels for all of the latest episodes and check out our social media platforms for more updates. And please remember to leave a review on the Apple Podcast channel so we know how you're finding them and leave any suggestions as well. Stay tuned for the upcoming episode where I'll be going over Clostridium difficile infection. Thanks for listening, guys. Take care and all the best.